We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Like that you can have a guy who called his plane the Lolita Express have like a US president or two, well, at least Bill Clinton. Um, and Trump. And on, Sorry. And Trump, I think. And Trump. Uh, you know, like... On the flight logs. Where, you know, like Allegedly. Trump is interviewed in 2003 in Vanity Fair <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, Epstein's a great guy, but some people say he likes girls even younger than I do. Like, it sounds like in the same way that for um, what, Harvey Win- Weinstein, like, this is just sort of an open secret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you think about, like, a lot of people claim climate change is a conspiracy theory mm. and then there's all these, you know, ideas that, um, you know, there's, like, these money rings going on and that's just used to justify, um, you know, maintaining the status quo and for people to be able to believe that, um, you know, the way that they've lived um, still has value. Um yeah, I think usually things are a lot more complex and you can trace a lot of these things back to like there may be some element of truth where you can see where these things have come from but usually it's like, oh, you want to just be able to say like there's this big network of people that are behind all of this. <laughs> um, where I work, there's a fellow who has um, these gigantic signs out on the main road just a few houses up from the, the local MP um, with like... The police, this this member of the police is corrupt and uh, Bill Shorten's a member of the Malta Mafia. All true. <laughs> Full support. You see, this is like, you know, he, this guy's obviously struggling with a lot of things and it's easy to just be like, the whole world is part of this ring that is designed to, like, keep us all down. And uh, in some ways it is, but it's more complex than just, like, um, like that. I think that is, like the cartoon version of reality, um, which has a lot of these elements in it. But um. Yeah, and I think but I think the like fascination with Epstein as well is, you know, like it's a it's a symptom of the um, sort of like increasing alienation and and uh, uh, sort of defeat of like collective movements and things like that or a sense of collect wielding collective power. Like I think like even if you know, like when um, Epstein's death in prison, like even if it, em- like, you know, like even if it emerged that Epstein was indeed murdered, um, like what is anyone going to do about it? Like, you know, you know, it's like um, a woman claimed that, you know, one of the women who, one of Epstein's, uh, one of the survivors from like Epstein's like child sex trafficking claimed that she saw Bill Clinton on the island and like nothing's come of that. And it's like this sort of like quite like, you know, conspiracy theories are disempowering and demobilizing, but it's like even confronting all of that stuff. It's like the open question for everyone in the US is like, everyone's like, well, what do we do? Yeah, well, that's it. I think it's like, that's kind of what I was saying before with like how depressing it ultimately is. Well, there is like initially the spark of like a really fascinating and horrifying scandal that does hook you in just because it is so fucked up. But then you're just like, oh. Yeah, no, there's nothing. <laughs> and I think in a way, like, pos- I think Matt Chrisman on Chapo made the same point that it is intended to be blatant. Like, the intent is to, to that people should feel their own powerlessness, should know that this is going on and there's nothing they can do. I think one of the, you know, one of the other broader point, like, ideological points is, because, you know, we were in travelling through, like, we were in Spain 
a few week like a few months ago well a month ago now and learning a lot going on these amazing tours in the Spanish Civil War and like one of the things that came out of that was a really good reminder if people don't need it that like you know the fascist up rebellion or like coup launched against the democratically elected government in Spain in 1936 was essentially aided and abetted by western democratic countries uh like quite blatantly you know like britain flew franco from uh gibraltar uh into spain like they refused to let republican ships re uh refuel in the straits of gibraltar you know, like they put an ar- essentially an arms embargo on this democratically elected government, all under the auspices of like appeasing Hitler and d- essentially deciding that like a left government was democratically elected government was more of a threat than a fascist dictatorship in Spain. And as a result, millions of people died. And, you know, then there's like that history of the US backing, you know, like removing Ende in Chile and uh, all like they're essentially carrying out of the Monroe Doctrine in South America. And, like, I think one of the ideological things, like, one of the successes of ideology, like, there's just a sort of unconscious common sense that somehow, West, like, Western capitalist countries uh, are somehow defenders of democracy. Or, like, even in, even for all of the atrocities committed, like, there's, there's something that, like, innate in those political systems that protects democracy. When, in fact, it's just, like, it's, you know, like, the system only exists because like the balance of forces, often large working class movements demanded some form of suffrage in the early 20th century and achieved that, but couldn't ever really stop those countries acting in their own direct economic interest and geopolitical interest, essentially to crush and murder lots of millions of ordinary people. Um, But like, I think, I don't know why, in some sort of like indirect way, watching this Epstein stuff play out, it was like a good reminder that like, there's a very thin veneer of respectability over like essentially these like legal and demo- and democratic system, quote unquote, that often like the breakdown the moment any like power or wealth or like the position or structures, structures in society that uh, replicate capitalism and all the people that most benefit from capitalism, the moment they're threatened, that veneer is removed. Yeah. And I reckon like maybe the last point to make on this before we go full Epstein brain is that the fact that, like, so many powerful people were on those flight logs and allegedly went to the island and allegedly raped young girls, like, that, that, I mean, they're all obviously bad people, but that's not the only thing. Like, there is something about that echelon of society that is deeply sick and it's not just about them as individuals. Like, that whole class is completely fucked and... um you know, we shouldn't be looking towards like, you know, he's just an individual bad person analysis, which I think often gets trotted out in regards to Trump. Like they're all sick and they need to go to the guillotine. The end. Well, we could do just like a brief kind of cat because we haven't done a, a cast in a while because um, Max and I were a, Traveling. Um, we say who's here. Oh yeah, good idea. <laughs> we always forget to do this. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm I'm Joe. Uh, you probably, if you listen, you know this, but you can find me on Twitter, Joanna underscore Horsham. I'm Amy, a sporadic guest on the podcast uh, at Macman Amy. That's M A C. Otherwise, you're cancelled if you if it's M C. Uh, Max. Um, yeah. Uh, tweet at M Chanlamaver. Mostly, it's just like bitter tirades at the Labor Party. <laughs> um, and I'm Callum. I'm 
not online, so you can't at me. Don't. Okay. Wow, Callum, you actually can't be cancelled. <laughs> it's the law. If you're not online, can you be cancelled? If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to cancel it, does it still make a sound? Um, so, yeah. Could we, should we talk a little bit about the Green New Deal stuff? I did want to take as our kind of jumping off point... Um, Queensland Labor's recent move to make it official with the mining industry. So at their recent uh, conference, their state party conference on the weekend, um, they declared their support for the resources industry. Queensland Labor supports the coal industry, party president John Battens declared as he delivered a sobering speech to the party faithful yesterday, conceding Labor had bungled its messaging leading up to its brutal federal election dropping in May. We support coal jobs, but... We also support a strong environment, a strong environmental stand, particularly in the area of renewable energy. They haven't changed their message at all. It's exactly the same. It's a hundred percent, but now it's official. Uh, now they've just said we officially support coal, but we also officially support the environment. Um, Palaszczuk gave a speech, um, issuing this is in the Korea Mail's terms, issuing her own clarion call to coal country, um, and she said. Uh, coal, gas and renewable industries all these jobs are good, decent jobs um, so yeah, I reckon that leads us nicely sort of to a discussion about, uh, I think that, that that framing which they seem really committed to is obvious bait for the response no jobs on a dead planet, so I did want to talk about how we go, how we talk about jobs and, and the environment without going full no jobs on a dead planet and maybe also why that framing You know why I think a lot of us tend to disagree with that one yeah, I mean, I think the, the the obvious response, and it's been coming up a lot, is the Green New Deal, um, and you know, the, I like I think basically the general premise of the Green New Deal is that we can reconstitute some sort of like, uh, sort of like broad social and economic agenda that is based around a massive massive investment in decarbonizing the economy uh, through essentially like a redistributive lens. So like you know carbon neutral social housing, publicly owned renewable energy, free public transport, uh, you know, like uh, massive rounds of revegetation uh, and that the work needed to do that is used as a way of essentially giving people a job uh, and a lot of that is funded by probably first massive tax increases on you know, the big corporations, and in particular fossil fuel corporations, and this, uh, and this is a way of essentially, like, uh, putting meat on the bones of a just transition. Uh, and that, that certainly has been the, like, that's a, I think that's been, like, the left's, broadly speaking, the left's response now for a little while. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean... I think the look. I mean, I think the, really the open question now is: is it wor- is it working? Because I, if our um, question is, does it resonate with um, like other left fellow travelers on social media? Then yeah, like it's really popular. But like, I'm interested to interrogate whether or not it's cutting through in broader popular discourse, or if it's like, or if there's some real like my growing instinct because I like came to this originally the Green New Deal stuff being really excited about it um, because it's felt like a really elegant way of fighting back against the Coles create jobs stuff uh, but or whether or not there's some dangers embedded in it as well. I think um, we talked a little bit with uh, Mick who is a Greens organiser in um, Rockhampton. We did an episode with him 
a few months ago um, talking about, yeah, like, you know, the, the area of Queensland where he lives, um, which got a lot of attention after the federal election because Labor did so badly and whether, you know, obviously Labor has now taken the line that that was because they didn't um, make love to coal industry enough and this is what they're now trying to correct. But, you know, Mick was talking about how um, he thinks it's, it is really important to have concrete plans for jobs and I think maybe that's what the Green New Deal speaks to is just that sense of immediacy and practicality and actual possibility of something else happening that's not jobs in the coal industry. So I reckon while there are probably some very legitimate critiques uh, which you know I think we should explore there is the the problem I think remains that something like a reduced working week is not as does not seem as immediately possible at this moment. And that's not to say that it couldn't be made to see, to you know cut through and, and enter popular consciousness and seem like a, a real option and it is a real option. But at the moment, I think it just it seems like something far off in the future rather than something that could be achieved in the next five to ten years. To respond to your question, Max, is this working? I don't think we know yet because I don't think uh, this has been communicated yet. Uh, one of the things we saw during the federal election was. Um, the Greens attempted to do this Sorry, Amy, you mean the climate election? <laughs> the climate election. Um, well, I think that's exactly it, right? Like, we had these little nuggets in there that we knew were really good that got drowned out by the Adani convoy and the climate election, and we haven't really had clear air to get out there and talk to people about these ideas and to make the case that if we want action on climate change, it has to bring people along, it has to you know, be supporting people's livelihoods. Um, and to support people's livelihoods, we have to address climate change. And we actually, we're gonna have to do both. Um, one without the other isn't gonna work. Um, we're either gonna have a, you know, a deeper entrenchment of the inequality that we're already seeing getting worse, and we're gonna see a worsening of um, climate change. And that seems to be the path that we're heading down. Um, so I, I don't, we, we haven't had the opportunity to make this case um, to people. And I think we were gonna be talking a little bit more about um, Extinction Rebellion and um, some of the big uh, movements that are going on. I think one of um, our biggest critiques of uh, some of these movements, and I would assume we share this sentiment, is that it's been very focused on, um, you know, uh, we just uh, we need to follow the science and we need to tell the truth and we need to have action without this broader analysis of why this is really happening. And I think, you know, those other messages are kind of being crowded out um, with this message of extinction, which is about animals and hasn't yet translated into people, mm. um, which is the key. Um, the key is connecting with people and we're not going to be able to do this we're not going to be able to make these changes if we don't bring those people and communities along. Um, is it working? I think that that is that is still to to find out. Um, if we ever get that clear air um, to talk to people. Um, no, I, I think where increasingly I've become sceptical about it as like the panacea, I suppose, or like, or like I think thing policies and or proposals that could under that could reasonably described as falling under the concept of a green new deal 
I think are useful, but I increasingly I'm skeptical about whether or not it's the useful meta narrative or like the broad or the thing by which we define our political program or a political program that would appeal to large swathes of people. And I think there's a few specific reasons for that. One, if you like the structure of the economy, Australian economy right now, is that, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true that um, coal companies, even if you look at the like second degree jobs it creates in that, like the, you know, the economy or even mining, um, while it generates a reasonable amount of royalty revenue, uh, which mostly in Queensland is going to padding out, like paying down debt, basically, uh, it creates very few jobs. So the the fastest growing sectors in the Australian economy are care work uh, and the service sector. And for them hearing the Green New Deal message, I just don't think is that is particularly... Like if we understand that like a broad transformative politics is about appealing to people's direct material lives and the conditions on, under which they're existing, I don't think it's particularly appealing. Um, like I don't, like I can't imagine in large sections of Australia that uh, appealing much except, and I think the, th- the second thing I would say is that um, the green, the new, uh, and I'm still sort of working this out of my head, but like, the new the Green New Deal draws its name from the New Deal post, you know, um, Roosevelt achieving that essentially uh, social compromise between the U- U.S. labor movement um, and a sort of dying U.S. economy in the lead up to World War Two. That was struck on the basis of a powerful constituted labor movement uh, and uh, capable of making some sort of corporatist. Uh, compromise with U.S. capitalism and the U.S. state. And it was a deal struck by a union movement that could genuinely represent in some meaningful way the interests of their workers in in a Fordist, Taylorist economy in the U.S. that was based around full-time work, uh, steadily increasing wages and steadily increasing growth. And we're just in very different historical conditions now. You know, that social contract type broken down, the labour movement's now all but extinct in Australia... And I think the other thing to think about is why uh, one of the reasons why neoliberalism was in some ways ideologically ideologically successful, and that was the rejection of full-time alienating work that a lot of people did embrace. Like the concept of flexible work wasn't just something imposed on people. People did seek it out. They wanted flexible working arrangements. Ideally, though, you achieve it with a large increase in, you know, universal social housing or Medicare or... Other aspect, the other aspect of social services that mean you don't have to work, but you're um, in the act of not working, you don't just become um, deeply insecure and live in poverty. And I think the conditions now under Australian capitalism and in an Australian society, a are like there's two classes going on. There's people who're not getting enough work, and there's also a class of people who have been desperately overworked. I'm in the first class. Yeah, yeah that's right. At, yeah, same. Um, if anyone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's looking for a, um, I don't know, Callum, what do you want to be? I want to, deal job would be something like part-time that pays, you know, fairly okay, that I don't have to give too much of a shit about, but that I can radically unionize. Okay, so if you <laughs> are... <laughs> <laughs> if you're the owner of such a business, you want your workforce to be unionized, sitting around thinking, what the hell, how can I get these people to join the union? Just get in touch with Cal. <laughs> I had an interview a few weeks ago um, at um, a big shopping centre 
chain thing. Um, it was like a car park attendant or whatever. And I went in there, I was like, oh yeah, you know, this felt pretty confident. It was fine. Yeah. Um, and then they were like, so what hours are you looking for? And I was like, oh, you know, um, you know, looking for maybe four to five days. And then they like sort of looked at me like, you know, like weird and like, you know, all three. Like, <laughs> two, one, <laughs> below the minimum wage. Half a day. Um, I was like, okay, that felt pretty good. And then he called me back and was like, look, we... We loved your interview, but uh, we just can't offer you the hours. And I was like, oh, what were you guys thinking? And they're like, oh, you know, zero to 38. <laughs> zero like, to 38. Like, did you, so like, what? I don't know, it was so annoying. Sorry, what, how many days is that? Like, zero, like, I mean, what, what is no, the correct zero. answer that you were supposed to give? Zero to seven? Like, <laughs> stupid, but I think that's one of those, that's the casualization. Of, right. Like, they can either offer you something or nothing. I, I think in the US it's called zero hour contract. UK, yeah. Or oh, I don't know about the US, but definitely in the UK, yeah. Look, and, you know, and that talk about, Amy, you being in the second class of, like, overwork. Overworked bullshit job holders. And I think the... Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Biggest challenge for me is that I I commute an hour to and from where I work. So that's two hours out of my day. That's a lot of people, actually. A lot of... A majority increased the commute hours in Australia are really increasing. And um, it's exhausting. And when I think that it's ten hours lost out of my week... um, How much in the year? <laughs> like me, I like try and make the time as useful as possible, but that's just dead time. It is completely. You know, people like who have families and or anything else that you want to do with your time, and public transport would make that journey like an hour journey would make it an hour and a half, and I just I can't spare three hours out of my day. You need a fast train. I need a fast train. Fast train. <laughs> a free fast train. <laughs> I don't know the message that I think might cut through better in Australia than like the Green New Deal is what we were sort of doing, or not we, you guys were doing with the federal election around just living a better life. I feel like that is what, yes, really for me anyway, as the hack that I am, even that was inspiring to my little frivolous. <laughs> I want to live a better life, I want to work less and still be able to, you know, afford a decent living and. And that sort of stuff. And I think that's exactly the direction we need to go through. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is the thing. Like the last book I was reading was this great, um, almost like an autobiography, but it's like a history of the Italian Communist Party. Max read this all through Italy. Uh, it's fucking great. <laughs> by uh, Lucio Magri, Having who uh, was like a dissident Italian communist. And it's called The Taylor of Ulm. And it's highly recommended. Like it's fantastic but right at the end um of like the because of the history of the italian communist party was uh the largest uh communist party in europe outside of the soviet union and about about two and a half million members and regularly polled above 30 percent in italy but because of cold war politics was locked out anyway right at the end they dissolved themselves and tried to decide to change their name and the dissident sort of like the one third of the party who wanted to keep the name had this amazing moment where they produced this incredible document that's really well worth reading. The central argument was like, we shouldn't change our name now because the conditions of capitalism actually now are really um, conducive more so than before to a concept of small C communism, specifically because of the like deeply and increasingly alienated nature of consumer capitalism, the fact that jobs now, like the the jig was up and like jobs increasingly people were finding them very, uh, you know, like, disempowering and the culture of capitalism was disintegrating to the extent that no one really found meaning in consumption anymore and that like uh, a radical left for the lack of a better term articulation of a better life 
and that we can redistribute wealth in a way that ensures people can live meaningful lives and find meaning outside of consumer capitalism actually was like a it was uh, deeply appealing and you know we experimented a bit with it during the Griffith campaign uh, uh, Liam our campaign manager called it beach socialism which was like you want to spend more which we want to spend more time at the beach um, and you want to live uh, you just need the basics you need to go on and live the concept of a good life and uh, I think the the argument could be made that say the Green New Deal is a way of a path towards a good life because you're given the resources to live a good life but I think when that breaks down is people's material experiences of jobs isn't of a good income or you know giving them they don't see it as giving them the means to go and live a good life because it, it precisely it denies them the ability to live a yeah, good life because it's a zero sum game it's time like you were saying like you know you can you can get income but every you know you're giving up your life in order to get that exactly and i think it's quite so i i think for those reasons i think we're going to increasingly i feel like a green new deal as some sort of broad meta narrative is a bit of a dead end path and but mostly it's frustrating because we're giving up the huge free kick that capitalism is giving us in a sense is that it's like people's lives are increasingly meaningless alienating individuating disempowering uh like the existential nature of the climate crisis hanging over us like we are- so the whole idea of beach socialism um i feel bridges the gap between um that split between the UBIists and the um, full job guarantees, because you know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, full, you know, good jobs for everybody. Um, you know, UBI is bullshit, sort of thing. So the UBI people are like, you know, oh well, you know, everyone should have um, that basic income, but it can get hijacked by the tech bros. Yeah. Um, and I think like there's good arguments to have both, and I think the critiques of both are valid. But um, you know, at the end of the day, like. Jobs are shit. No one wants to work. Um, People want to work less. <laughs> want to work less. Like work for the most part sucks. And I feel like beach socialism. That's the, is that the name of the podcast? This? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, is really bridges that gap because it, it's like you know yes, and people should have jobs. People should have enough to live, and they should have the time to live a good life. I feel like it's that really good glue that ties it all together. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I do want to have like a quick discussion. Um, about the role of like what we've been jokingly calling climate jobs in this, uh, you know, post-work kind of utopia. Because like, I don't know, I reckon there is something to be said for like providing people with a meaningful outlet. Like, so I recently quit my job of two and a half years um, and yeah, (laughs) uh, to basically, you know, sit at home and work on my own projects and potter around for a while. and it's been good, but I, yeah, I, I do think, judging from like my other experiences of, of longish term unemployment, like it, it gets to the point where you do want to be doing something. And I wonder like about the potential of having opportunities for people to do kind of some of that climate work. I mean, I know that a lot of it would be automated stuff like um, removing plastic or, or litter or something like that or recycling is largely automated, but yeah, we've been kind of tossing around this idea of climate jobs as like removing lantana from forests and, you know, digging, planting trees and that kind of thing. So, I don't know, does that have a place in this in this um, future vision or is it just, is it is all work like condemned? I don't know, what do you reckon? No, I, I think there is a place for that. Um, um, for me, when we talk about the Green New Deal, I know that that 
that phrase and the way that they're talking about it in the States comes out of, um, you know, these unique conditions and this, these historical processes. But I think this is now up to us to create the content of what this is and find ways that we can communicate to people and connect with people. And we do have, like, we have these multiple challenges. We have 25% youth unemployment in outback Queensland. We have people who are overworked, we have people who are underworked. We have like a massive mental health crisis in Australia. Um, and we have climate change as well. And so um, we have an understanding about how all of these things are connected and we have an opportunity now to talk. I think we can be connecting all of these things and we can be saying, um, yes, we know that you're really suffering if you don't have a job. You're really suffering if you're overworked and here's all the ways we can find this balance. Um, and when we talk about these green jobs, like we talk about all the things that we need to do. We talk about, um, you know, renewable energy is usually at the top of the list, but I think that's actually, uh, you know, um, just one thing in a broad suite of things that we need people to do. Like, um, in the work that I do, uh, I go out and talk with people in um, like, a, a, like a western part of Brisbane and um, these are neighbourhoods that are um, beset with poverty and racism and people are like, we wish the council would cut the grass here more because then we would feel safe to walk around in our neighbourhoods and we would feel safe to walk our dogs after dark. Um, and you think, okay, you need more people to mow the lawn. Um, and, you know, really simple things. I, I, I chatted with my colleagues about this idea of climate jobs the other day and immediately they were like, one of them was like, I want to go work in schools and do like reading time for kids. And the other one was like, I want to work in a shop. Uh. <laughs> you know, I'm a highly professional, educated public servant, like, for an out. Yeah, that involves like connection with people, and I think a lot of people feel this really innately. But then we go home and we think, I've got to pay my rent, and um, you know, I'm looking after kids, and I'm paying for childcare, mm. um, and I have to pay for petrol, and so you feel kind of stuck. Mm. So, what part of what needs to um, to fill whatever we end up calling this Green New Deal, and I agree, I think we need we need some other kind of framing for um, the Australian context, but it needs to have all of this together. Um, and this is really hard, like how do you easily communicate to people, but like finding a way to be like, we need to do all these things at the same time. Um, and probably some kind of like capitalist analysis needs to be breaking through to be like, there's a reason why you're feeling like this and there's mm. a reason why you wake up in the morning and you're feeling so shit um, and using that uh, and it feels like I don't know it, it feels like there's been a bit of a shift like in the last few years um, definitely in like lefty circles um, to be more explicit about our analysis and the solutions that we're offering and I think we can slowly start to reach out to people. Yeah, I suppose I think like my analysis of why work is alienating is like I think the moment your mate went and worked in a shop, it would end up being just as miserable. Like probably after a couple of months. Well, yeah, and like I've worked for small businesses and big businesses and everything. And the idea is just um, like in those situations, you're like just the the um, 
dictatorship of it all is in a way a humiliation like you know mm. you're being ordered around being told what to do when to you know show up when to eat when to piss when you know when to go home and all sort of that stuff is quite humiliating at yeah. a deep level um and you you don't and the idea of you know i'm having to come here i'm really just making someone else rich as well mm. another part of it yeah um then also you know fucking look out the window it's a beautiful fucking day and i'm stuck inside it's like the simpsons where like bart is sitting in the yeah. you know like exactly yeah yeah but I reckon, but I think that's an important point though, that work, like when we kind of imagine ideal jobs, I think we imagine work as it could be, which is like providing meaning, like doing something you're interested in, um, giving your life a bit of a purpose, um, you know, connecting with other people. And we don't imagine the stuff around workplace hierarchies, the fact that it sucks up all your time, the fact that, you know, you'll soon become, come to resent it. But I think we are talking about the possibilities, like... I think when we when we talk about like yeah how work could be in the future and kind of a post capitalist reality, we aren't talking about work as it currently is. Like we are hoping to move past those hierarchical models or those the model where a single job takes up all of your time and you grow to resent it. So I think there's potential there. I don't think work should be written off completely. <laughs> no, I. And like early Marx, right? All the early Marx writing, like, spent a lot of time on alienation and the fact that just work under capitalism was alienating, partly, I think, like, for the reasons Callum articulated. But one of the other major reasons, you know, was that there was a disconnect between there was an artificial separation between mental and manual labor. Uh, there was um, a, a disconnect between uh, the work that you produce or the things that you help produce and your ownership over them. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, all manner of things. So you, uh, like essentially a broad scale disempowerment in your workplace. And for that reason, I think any work that occurs under capitalism is going to be in some form uh, alienating. And uh, I think the other thing is that the domination of work over our lives, whether it's not enough or um, too much, is that it has created another one of the, I think, broad alienations is a separation between what le- leisure and work. Uh, and the idea that there's leisure and if you do too much of it, you get bored and then there's work going back to being useful in some sense, which, as Callum pointed out, is mostly producing value for capitalists. And, you know, like, you know, Marx's old vision was like, what is it like being a philosopher in the morning and a fisherman in the afternoon? I think it's something like that. I can't remember the exact details. And I don't, like, for me, this is why I don't think, you know, like, whatever we call it, like, you know, like any form of Green New Deal, which is like a massive inve- public investment in green infrastructure, essentially. I think where it gets, where I think we're almost getting it, we're almost doing, we're doing an inversion of what, of what we should be talking about in the sense that the inversion would be actually just giving people, like the solution, for instance, to youth unemployment in North Queensland, uh, or really is just giving people a lot of money with no strings attached. Like, and then access to a whole bunch of free services. Um, and of course, I think like care work, socializing care work, the fact that breaking down loneliness and involved in all of that stuff, that is lower W work, but, uh, and giving people meaning in their lives. Uh, but I don't necessarily think, I, don't, I, I suppose I don't, th- and I think that forms part of a radical economy, but I think Green New, any talk of a Green New Deal as this broader narrative mis- misdirects our analysis and misdirects 
the way to talk to people, I suppose, which is, I suppose we don't want a rerun of the 1970s, but instead of building boilermakers and cars, we're building solar panels and uh, mowing lawns. Like, who cares? Like, for a lot of people, it's like, who gives a shit? Like, I, I'm still... I'm still doing stuff that I've, even if like at some abstract level, I'm helping to stop climate change. I, for most ordinary people, like I just genuinely think that actually the, what they want to know is that um, they're living a life that is unalienated and connects them to other people and is meaningful in some way. And they're given the resources to go and live that life. And this is where I think I would much rather have, instead of a green new deal, I'd much rather talk about, um, communal luxury or like beach socialism or which I think is much more fun <laughs> which the left is never fun we're always Darren talking about big industry and jobs um, what do you mean that's fun <laughs> yeah but 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 genuinely like something that's irreverent and joyful and um, gets to the critique and the heart of capitalism which is no matter fucking what you're making or what you're doing it is you're making money for someone else it's disempowering and alienating and we're taking this like precious moment of consciousness of like 80 years of life on this earth and fucking turning it into mostly like either sleeping or working or fretting about not having enough money to live um, and in you know in a moment when we have all of these resources to give people, we can distribute our productive capacity and technological capacity and our resources in a way that ensures everyone only has to work a minimum amount of time and largely gets to go and reinvent what leisure means. I think that's a much more, much better way of pressing on the current contradictions of capitalism than I think a Green New Deal would be. I think under our beach socialism, one of the policies should be a reverse work for the doll program, so that if you're the CEO and for every X amount over a million dollars you have, you have to clear your, you know, hectare of Oh my God. Were <laughs> you reading Mal yeah. <laughs> recently? <laughs> yeah, so the gang does cultural revolution. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I, don't, I don't see these two strings of things as necessarily contradictory. I think, um, and I think in the moment that we're in, we do need to be offering people some opportunity to say, like, there's all these useful things that we need doing, um, but you're not, like, if we're coupling that with the decommodification of, you know, essential services and the things that you need and saying, whatever work you do is not going to dominate your life and you're going to have time to do all the things that you need to do, but you have an opportunity to take part in you know, the incredible array of things that we really need doing. And, and the thing that I always, that always, um, you know, is a stumbling block for me when I think about, like, um, a post-work world is there's a whole lot of things that we need people to do that are still going to be, like, uh, essentially required. Like, you can never, um, you can never go without nurses. And there's a whole lot of... And aged care is a big one. Care, and there's a whole lot of, like, elements of human rights that require um, people doing you know quite difficult labor if you think about disability care for example like you need people showing up on time doing really hard work um, and ideally uh, you know in, in the world that we're envisioning this is um, very well remunerated you're getting excellent training you're getting excellent support to do that work but you're always going to need that layer of work there we acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and the Agra people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Um, we had a bit of a chat earlier in the day about the, well, 
I was talking to you all about the crisis facing the Postal Service, Australia Post. <laughs> both my local post office and the local post office where I work are both going to close within the next six months. And, um, you know, our local Labor MP has done some, like, a pretty pathetic representation around this. But the reason that this service, this essential service... The original posters. <laughs> ...is because it was... Um, it was corporatised by the Labor government under the Hawke uh, government in 1989 to be a government-owned corporation, whereas previously it had been a public service and had run in um, buildings owned by the government. And now a lot of post offices are like were, were sold to private entities and are rented back by the government to run post offices. And you think, okay, so we're still going to need people to run the post office. And that's like, that's not really compelling work, is it? No, no, like... To be honest, I don't think we probably will end up people needing people to run. But at what point does Green New Deal mean everything then? Because my point is that my point is the the nugget of critique I'm getting at on the Green New Deal is the concept of things like jobs guarantee, which often underpin concepts of the Green New Deal, which I think would be deeply unpopular and a bad path for the uh, uh, to go down. Or should we go down the path that the labor movement went down up until about 1950, which was reducing the working week? It's no coincidence that the labor movement, often at the peak of its power, the one thing they wanted was less work. Often, actually, in the um, the turn of the 19th and 20th century, often a lot of the labor movement's demands were like, don't give us a pay increase and we'll even fucking cop a pay cut or at least keep our pay the same. Take, reduce our working hours. Give us more freedom from the tyranny of of work. And I suppose what I'm suggesting is that if we lead with something like a Green New Deal, we're ultimately leading with jobs. What I, I suppose what I'm suggesting is what we should it should be the inversion. We should lead with the what comes on the other side of a job, which is more free time and a distribution of resources in a way that ensures that we get to do other things. I agree that we'll need a lot of care work and we can probably abolish a lot of bullshit jobs and it means that everyone's only working three days a week and in those three days, one of those days is going into our local nursing home and um, like helping with the crisis in aged care. Absolutely true. But I don't think that's a Green New Deal in any way that's been articulated in any meaning by AOC or Bernie Sanders or anyone I've seen in Australia talk about a Green New Deal. Often the ideological underpinnings of those, a massive investment in public infrastructure, green infrastructure, and jobs guarantee, uh, which I think is getting it the wrong, which is getting it the wrong way around. And certainly when I, when we went door knocking in Griffith, weirdly enough, the things that fell flat were jobs. Like when we talked about how many jobs were created, people's eyes glazed over. Because it's just what they hear from Labor and Liberal parties all the time. Also, like jobs it's suck. Become, <laughs> it's, I think it's, but I also think it's just become a little bit meaningless. Like everyone promises jobs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I, I suppose if your top level message then coming from the progressive left is we're going to create this many jobs in clearing Lantana or whatever, I just think we're going to pass people by and pass a moment by that is really a massive but historical I wonder whether we're talking about two different things in a way. Like you're talking about how we sell I don't know maybe sell is the wrong word but what should we be talking about what should we be trying to make like popular and trying to like make the new Overton window focusing on I don't know I'm mixing my metaphors there but you know yeah um, <laughs> whereas I'm when I'm talking about clearing Lantana I'm kind of talking about the the reality of that future like what would that look like well, it wouldn't be clearing Lantana <laughs> no, speak for yourself but I actually I actually wanted to pick up on another point um Something you said before, Max, about um, the fact that the left is always so austere and we like to talk about boring things and, um, you know, we should be 
refocusing on kind of luxury and, and beach socialism and stuff. So I did like, I think this comes up a little bit um, when you talk about like fully, fully automated luxury communism, I think is the thing we talk about. Well, we talk in maybe not those exact terms, but we talk about the concept quite a bit on this show. So I want, I'm interested to talk about the concept of luxury um, in the context of climate change. Like, is that possible? What kind of luxury might that look like? Is all luxury inherently bad for the environment? I feel like, well, no, obviously. But I think that the concept of communal luxury is really important here. Like when we, we were, um, not to bring everything back to our travels, but when we were going through Europe, it was really interesting to talk. We talked a little bit about um, what do like what do holidays look like under socialism? <laughs> um, you know, like what? how do you democratise the holiday experience? And especially in like the, the context of a European urban setting, yeah, the concept of having a communal luxury experience really came through where, for instance, you can have like a, a really nice pool that everyone can use instead of like a few people having their own pool. Um, parks were like a really important part of that landscape as well. And obviously those are like pretty low carbon options compared to the, the option of a very small billionaire class having all of their own versions of those things. That's my thinking about that, but I'm interested to hear what other people think. What are we talking about when we talk about luxury? That's a, that's a good question. That is a good question. I think it maybe means different things to different people. I really guess it depends on, um, you know, for me, a lug- for me, at this point in time, like a luxury would be having a car, mm. a little Toyota Crawler or something. Yeah, cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> Speak to Amy about electric vehicles. <laughs> because for me, when I think of communal luxury, I think for so many people, like, it would be just luxurious not to have the stress of day-to-day living and, you know, paying the bills and wondering about food and stressing about jobs. Like, just getting rid of that stress would be fucking luxury. Um, and I think that's probably would be a base level for me in terms of what communal luxury would be. Yeah, do, do you think your car, um, you know, the way that our cities are set up where the best way to get around is with a car, like, if we had an exceptional public transport system, would that be sufficient and could that be a form of luxury because it means you can get around while reading your book while reading your book yeah yeah absolutely and I think the biggest thing for me you know behind why I want a car is because I want to go and because you guys know me I like love hiking and and travelling and but like you know locally and camping that sort of stuff but to get to those places I need a vehicle Mm. and in a in a you know beach socialism society there'd be some sort of communal Car. Are you talking trains? <laughs> <laughs> like this is like Elon Musk. He was like he wanted to create. It was like some. It was like some sort of like tunnel where like you move along a straight track, but you're in a car, and it's like you've just invented like in a small car. You like invented trains, but less efficient trains. <laughs> it's like it's like nationalizing Uber or something. Or car sharing, right? Yeah, because, you know, say, for instance, you want to go to um, Springbrook or something, you can't take a train out to Springbrook. You know, you'd have to have some sort of small... The last ten... Yeah, you'd probably... Look, you know... And uh, there's obviously got to be some way to do it. I'm I'm just saying, like, you know, in the... the, the, You know, under communal luxury, it'd just be a whole reimagining of how we actually deal with the ownership of services and certain, um, you know, things. Yeah, I mean, I think... Like, on that, I mean, probably what you'd think about is a mass electrified free um, train network that gets you most of the way to Springbrook and then there's the last 10 minutes is 
essentially like self-driving, publicly owned minibuses or cars. Like that's probably what it would end up being. But I think on the concept of luxury, I think the interesting question is, um, you know, sections of the environment movement get really upset about the concept of fully automated luxury communism or concepts of luxury because luxury hegemonically under capitalism is associated with mass consumption. You know, like going and buying lots of shit that you don't need or like a really big plasma television or whatever. Luxury for like, there's two parts here. I think one is, you know, Aaron Bastani's book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, talks about molecular agriculture uh, and the fact that we can be making lobster and ribeye steak and all of these things with very little environmental impact or severely much reduced, essentially producing meat from stem cells and things like that without... Um, uh, without a lot of the environmental impact. Um, uh, but I also think, like, you know, as I think people have alluded to and alluded in the term in beach socialism, like luxury is being on the beach drinking a gin and tonic, you know, like with your feet up and the waves crashing in front of you or whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't know what country you're in, mate. Here we drink Forex. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah sorry. <laughs> you really exposed yourself there. <laughs> the, maybe the most ruling class you've ever sounded. <laughs> oh, come on. No, that, like, people, the beach... Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know like, like luxury is being like around the is like playing soccer in the park knowing that like at night you don't have to do anything other than go and eat some delicious food or like uh luxury is going to a beautiful park um with friends etc uh on a, like a free mass public well air conditioned public transport system um, actually air conditioning is a really interesting lens onto this conflict i think because there is a uh a- a, a um, section of the environment movement who's like ban air conditioning. Yeah, well, we should ban them. But yeah, I reckon like that's that's the difference, right? Like if your whole vision of the future is just about depriving people of comfort in the name of like some, you know, because you think that's the only way to deal with climate. I don't know. I reckon our if we are if we do have any hope of bringing people along with us um, in a transformative vision to kind of address climate change it has to it can't be about banning air conditioning like it has to keep humans at the center of it as you were saying amy yeah i think this is we've probably talked about this a lot um one of the big problems with the environmental movement at the moment is it's all about like these extra responsibilities that you need to take on to save the planet yeah totally or what you have to give up yeah if you ever eat a chocolate bar like the wrapper is definitely ending up in the belly of a turtle like Mm. (laughs) 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 or a shark why And so you need to do all these extra things and you need to, you know, be going out of your way to um, be, you know, taking your glass jars to fill up with some grain at the markets. And if you don't do that, then... You're cancelled. Yeah, we're forgetting the fact that, like, we live in a society that has enabled a supermarket duopoly where, like, all your cheese is wrapped in plastic. Um, and so, like, there's this close link between all having to do all this extra work yourself and what you need to do to save the environment, which I think is one of the one of the challenges. And this idea that like decarbonisation and degrowth is all about like what we're going to have to give up, as opposed to like what we're going to be able to gain. Mm. Mm-hmm. And thinking about luxury, like the best job I think that I've ever had was when I was teaching English at a college in the city. I could walk there. 
I worked eight till two, four days a week. And from I remember two, that. I would walk back through the botanic gardens and I got to have an, a half an hour to an hour just sitting in the park, um, like decompressing after a busy day teaching. And it was, it was great. I had enough money to live and I had all this time to just, you know, enjoy myself in the sunshine and then go and have enough time in the afternoon to do everything else that I need to do with my life. Um, and I think, you know, that's that for me, that was like a luxurious mm. to live. Totally. And I look back on that and I think now like, oh, like, you know, luxury for me would be like getting home to be able to walk my dog during daylight hours. Mm. Um, and that's impossible. Um, like I think in anything we think like, um, you know, being able to be outdoors with the people like in the work that I do, we do a lot of consultation around like, what do we need to make this neighborhood really good for young people? And people are always saying really simple things like we need a swimming pool and we need more basketball courts and we need like free sports lessons. They want TikTok videos. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and they want to get free Wi-Fi at the skate park. So they can make TikTok videos. <laughs> As I understand it, they want to play some Halo 2 on a massive LAN. Is that right? That's the game the youth play now? I don't fucking know. It's <laughs> nice to do that together, right? Because like, you know, pe- the people I'm speaking to are always like, We've got these terrible atomized little property developments where people are all inside. There's nowhere to go and um, spend time with other people um, in the sunshine. How good is alive in the sunshine? I'm just trying to pull up that quote now from uh, um, yeah. Alyssa Battistoni. No, it wasn't Alyssa Battistoni. Oh, she's quoting Virginia Woolf. Yeah. But I reckon like that is a really important point. Yeah. Well, what you were saying basically, Colin, like what is luxury? And I think maybe what we've been conditioned to think of luxury as which is, you know, like plasma TVs, um, I don't know what else, like fur coats, caviar, that sort of thing. A lot of that is a response to the extreme alienation of the kind of society we live in at the moment. And especially like, yeah, the emptiness and soul-killing drudgery of wage labour means that like, in a way, our, our potential, our imagination about what, what is luxurious, what is the good life is limited to these consumer goods and that becomes held up as a symbol of success or luxury whereas yeah or happiness whereas I think what we've been talking about and what most people would probably agree is like the fundamental ingredients to if not luck maybe maybe what we've been talking about is the good life but I think we can conflate that with luxury like maybe it means the same thing in the end um is is, is a lot simpler and a lot lower carbon actually mm. so uh, do you have that quote maybe um, that's a good spot to end on to because we've got to do our interview in a okay I mean the full like this is from Alyssa Battistoni's article Alive in the Sunshine which I really recommend uh, Virginia Woolf might seem an odd place to turn in response, but her essay, A Room of One's Own, while best known as a classic piece of feminist polemic, could serve just as well as a manifesto for such a politics. You know, this is actually, interestingly, some early, uh, sort of the precursor, I would say, to, like, the Green New Deal stuff. Uh, in it, she reflects on the instinct for possession, the rage for acquisition, which keeps the stockbroker and the great barrister going indoors to make money and more money and more money when it is a fact that £500 a year will keep one alive in the sunshine. With that £500, she wrote, came the freedom to think and write as she pleased. We should have a few more things to that list, universal health care, a bus pass, but figuring out what it takes to keep all 7 billion plus people on the planet alive in the sunshine will be the fundamental task of the 21st century. Revenues, revenues, re- revenues. So yeah, I was just going to ask you to start off with, um, can you explain briefly kind of 
for our listeners who might not have heard of it or who have only heard of it briefly, what what Extinction Rebellion is, kind of how it formed and what it's been doing recently. Sure. So Extinction Rebellion is a socio-political movement um, of people who recognise that we're in a climate crisis and want to do something about it. So it was started by academic activists, scientists, um, and spiritual leaders in the UK who got together and wanted to design a movement that would work. Um, so we've seen decades of past environmental movements failing to put enough pressure on the government and industries that are forcing it headlong into the sick mass extinction event. And so we um, were part of a kind of a movement and a feeling of people who are not only willing to act and get out there on the streets, but were willing to do what it takes. And it's back up by sort of social science that will um, enable us to mobilize the most amount of people to get on the street and, um, and fix this almighty problem we have as a species. Um, Tom, we were wondering how you've gotten involved and what your involvement has been in so far. Yeah, so I was living up the Adani blockade with another activist group um, in central Queensland. There was a blockade camp up there. Um, I'd only been up there a year, um, but it was pretty slow, sort of slow moving, waiting for Adani to start. Mm-hmm. And then um, I saw online the, that um, a group had started in the UK called Extinction Rebellion. And the first thing they'd done was go and block a road outside Parliament. And they kind of had gone there with the intention of being arrested, mm. um, which brought my attention because obviously they were disrupting commuters. There weren't that many of them. And, um, and then the next thing they did is they occupied the Greenpeace headquarters in the UK and demanded that Greenpeace um, call it a climate emergency, tell the truth. And so I sat there and, and said, you need to call the mass civil disobedience across, across the country um, because what you're doing right now isn't working. So I, I immediately recognized that was a very different angle from um, how a lot of groups have been operating. And, um, and then a few months later, I was down in Brisbane and, and saw nobody else was doing Extinction Rebellion in Queensland yet. So I started a... Uh, started to the Extinction Rebellion talk, which lasts about an hour, mm-hmm. um, which runs through the science, um, runs through the grief of accepting sort of where the world's heading and, and the catastrophe that is unfolding and what, what the world's going to look like, um, and then kind of moves into the history of civil disobedience and then what Extinction Rebellion's plan is to kind of um, fix problems and create some social change. Um, so I only did the first few talks and then the group has just been growing really, really rapidly and now there's thousands of people involved in Queensland and um, I just help out with some of the trainings and some of the action, some of the media, um, but it's been it's been amazing just to watch people's response to it and, um, and come into the movement and take ownership, you know, people that were nurses or uh, doctors, engineers, scientists, all, you know, unemployed people, old people, young people, uh, just coming in and never done anything to do a protest before, and now they're kind of running art groups and legal groups and sitting on the road. So it's, it's empowering normal people to come out and be activists, and um, just really, really exciting. Cool. Uh, Tom, Max here. Uh, we were wondering uh, basically what Extin- Extinction Rebellion's uh, long-term strategy was and its sort of theory of change? How is it going to sort of bring about and addressing the massive climate crisis? 
Sure. So the short-term strategy has been a mass movement-building awareness-raising kind of um, idea. So obviously we've got, we definitely got the attention in Queensland. Um, Long-term, we're looking to create a bit of a conundrum, if you will, for the Queensland government, um, where, you know, we're mobilising so many people that they... Um, that they eventually won't be able to just go to arrest everybody. So they will be then considering allowing us to continue the disruptions. Um, at the moment, it's kind of easier for them to arrest us all and repress us. Um, they do have the numbers, although we came close to filling up Queensland's biggest police station, White House, on August 6th. Um, so soon we'll get to a stage where they just can't arrest hundreds of people that will be occupying parts of the CBD, and they'll be forced to kind of, it'll be easier for them to let us disrupt that than to arrest all those people. Um, eventually, we'll be so disruptive that it will put so much economic pressure on the CBD and be so disruptive that they'll have to either be forced to arrest us or let us stay there, or then a third option will appear because it will eventually be easier with us to negotiate than it will be to arrest rather than non-violent peaceful activists. It will be easier than letting us disrupt. Um, so they will be forced to negotiate and then we can actually hope to see some meaningful action on climate change and, and, some, and some climate justice for people that are being oppressed by the current government as well. So we are out for system change and, um, yeah, we're... Um, yeah, we're aiming to be so disruptive with so many numbers that um, negotiating with us is the easiest option for them. Hey Tom, um, Callum here. So just with, I'm, in, I'm curious about the uh, long-term viability plans for Extinction Rebellion. You know, in the past you've had movements like Occupy um, flare up and then sort of dissipate quite relatively quickly afterwards. Do you guys have a plan to um, avoid that this time around? Yeah, absolutely. So Extinction Rebellion has 10 principles and values, like core principles and values, um, which are really well thought out. Um, I won't go through all of them, but some of them include uh, having a regenerative culture, meaning that you have to be able to operate in a way that's really built in that you've got to be able to sustain yourself um, and the people around you and the movement. So that's why we've seen kind of waves of protests in Europe and the Americas and Africa. Uh, and then some gaps in between. Then they come back with a bigger protest. Um, it's it's built um, on going beyond politics. So we will have people's assemblies that kind of decide how long we occupy for and when we do it. Um, and, yeah, I guess it's just we're going to create a culture, um, or we are already creating a culture, which is welcoming. People come to things like Occupy and Extinction Rebellion mass civil disobedience events because it's necessary, it's really important that they should come. Um, you know, uh, the difference is we're going to create spaces where people want to stay there. So that's when the art, the culture, the music, um, the kind of nice environment comes in and um, really, really building in the best of humanity is what we do and kind of creating the world that we want to see um, whilst we're occupying spaces and having civil disobedience events. So the theory is people will want to stick around and it becomes a more inviting space going back to your job or, um, or giving up on the occupation. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, about, it's a cultural thing.
the space for everybody. Everybody's welcome, and and um, the the arts, the music, and the kind of good good vibe that um, we create in that space are what's going to make people hang around. Um, plus, it's it's so important. We're running out of time. It's, it's getting to a do or die kind of um, moment in human history. So, yeah, people have to stick around. Um. Yeah, thanks for that. I think uh, me and a few others have been involved with some of the, the big days that have been going on, but I was wanting to pick up on um, the point you made about system change. So what, what kind of system change is Extinction Rebellion trying to encourage? Sure. So, I mean, everybody can agree on some pretty widespread things. One of them is the the system is not representing us. It's not It's not protecting people from the threats of the climate crisis. It's not... Um, it's not protecting people's sort of livelihoods from from um, what's going to happen. So um, we look to install what's called people's assemblies to make some decisions about the movement, and then citizens' assemblies. So like a jury would operate where you you, you randomly select members of the public to come into a court and, um, and make a decision based upon the evidence they're provided. A citizens' assembly would look something along the lines of a thousand people from all across Australia and lots of different demographics coming in and being presented with evidence from the best scientists, the best engineers, the best, con- the best um, conservationists and social scientists um, to literally make decisions based on the evidence in front of them rather than having a political system which is kind of just self-serving for the next political cycle so the idea being you get the experts in you get given options and then ordinary people make the choice it sounds very scary um but um ultimately it's a much fairer way of doing things and it means we'll have a future that's based you know our future decisions will be based on evidence rather than personalities or political gain or hierarchies um which yeah, so that's the general idea, and, and a lot more of that can be found on the Extinction Rebellion website, rebellion.earth. Um, there's been people working on terrorist societies for decades, or hundreds of years, in fact, um, and it's essentially mitigating the power, getting ri- rid of the power structures which exist only to self-serve. And, um, and yeah, so Citizens' Assembly is a really interesting concept. Exactly how it will look and work is, is not for a lot of people in the rebellion to decide. We're here because we know we need change, and I think everybody can agree that we, we do need that change. So, just had another question, sort of follow on from that. So, when we're talking talking about you know system change, and I, I, don't, I know you can't really talk for the whole Extinction Rebellion movement, but I guess in your opinion, um, do you think there is any hope of, of averting the climate crisis under um, capitalism, um, or do we need to change that first? And is that what we're sort of angling for with this system change in Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, I mean, it's clear we're not an anti-capitalist movement. Um, I mean, I think that's too specific. We are, we're against the current system and everything that's sort of allowing this catastrophe to happen. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess whatever stands in the way has to be changed. As Greta Thunberg says, uh, we can't keep playing by the rules. The rules have to be changed if we're going to do anything. And, um, yeah, I guess if that means capitalism and our, our sort of two-party system has to get out of the way, then essentially that's, um, that's what it will mean. But, um, yeah, I can't really speak for the whole movement. And, um, obviously, capitalism has had a massive part to play 
in why we are where we are now. Also, one thing that's often overlooked is um, uh, colonisation. It's really important to recognise this is a colonised country. And wherever you have had colonisation, you've also had oppression of people and um, exploitation of resources and nature. Um, so really recognising that in some formal way, we have to decolonise um, the country, the government and ourselves um, and kind of get get back to a more community-based style of living. Um, and I think that that plays as much a role as uh, capitalism has in why we are where we are in 2019 in Australia and around a lot of the rest of the world. Yeah, so just kind of picking up on what you said earlier about, um, yeah, the role of uh, UK Extinction Rebellion in um, confronting Greenpeace around the climate emergency, I'd be interested to hear kind of how Extinction Rebellion relates to the kind of mainstream climate movement. Um, yeah, what is the relationship there and is Extinction Rebellion a kind of response to um, past mistakes that have been made um, and how do you see that relationship playing out in future? Yeah, so obviously there's been thousands of people who've put, put a lot of work in. Sometimes they've given up huge parts of their life to work on environmental campaigns and sometimes even their lives to um, do so. So there's only respect for what has come before. But the tactics and the strategies they've used have, have failed. Mm. So it, it, is, it is with respect that we say we have to move on a step further. Um, now, we are often called extremists in the far left, and that's all part of the plan to shift what's called the Overton window, um, which is basically a gauge on public opinion. Um, so, petitions and marches have not worked. Um, if they'd worked, we wouldn't still have our emissions increasing. We wouldn't have projects like the Adani mine uh, with a green light to go ahead. Um, so, it's, it's, it's a very big recognition that what has been tried before hasn't work so not i mean we try not to name the shame <clears throat> but obviously greenpeace as a a pretty big brand they take a lot of money and a lot of people who notice the sort of disparity of the situation around the climate crisis will go to groups like greenpeace um to take real action to do something meaningful and are often met with a petition to sign or a uh, link to donate to them and in, in, in that kind of way, it, it's really disempowering for people and they, they feel like they can't really make a difference as an individual. It's not a kind of community-based grassroots group. So we're really, really for the kind of grassroots do-it-yourself feeling. Um, obviously, we are bringing mass awareness to the fact that we're in a crisis and that humans might go extinct. And that is scary for a lot of people. But as public opinion kind of recognises the trouble we're in, and, and part of that is to do with us and our, our very flashy big media actions, um, they will start going to groups like Soft Tiny and Greenpeace, who, um, as they see them as a more moderate kind of way to get involved and um, less extreme, even though they're not really extreme. It's quite, quite rational behaviour in the face of a climate crisis. Um, so, yeah, like we'll, we'll work with them, but... We do need to act as if the truth is real. Um, that's a saying from Extinction Rebellion. Uh, we need to act like the house is on fire. Well, we need to act differently. And if, if organizations fail to kind of accept that it is an emergency and use that in their messaging, where they say climate change instead of climate crisis, if they kind of, you know, give people too much false hope, because it, they're, they're scared it might scare them off from actually trying to 
try and affect games, then like we're, we're pretty against that because I think telling the truth about how dire the situation is is really, really important. And um, and also there's there's a whole other bunch of stuff that goes on, like charitable status for some of these organisations seems they can't advocate for any law-breaking activities, um, which obviously protects the, the income they get and staff they pay and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they're not always able within the sort of current system and the way charitable status and DGR status work to, to do what's right because they have to protect the kind of charity business they've already built up and, um, and that holds them back a lot and, and the people working for them aren't doing anything wrong but um, they, they become kind of self-serving sometimes um, protect, protect what they build up rather than doing what's necessary or always the right thing. Yeah, um, so you're talking about NGOs and the need for system change and, uh, you know, the need for citizen juries and things like that. And sort of related to that, we were wondering what uh, Extinction Rebellions, how uh, it relates to electoral politics. Uh, Do you think that electoral politics, uh, do you think Extinction Rebellion has a relationship with electoral politics or are they sort of like two completely different things? Um, Yeah, there's there's everything I was saying in Extinction Rebellion. We go beyond politics, so... We'll never align with one political party. Um, we, we try not to have an influence there, although inevitably there is going to be an influence there if um, politicians are saying they're going to be tough on extremists like this or if the Greens are saying, we well, get in line with you guys um, and Extinction Rebellion is good. We, we don't do that because we're a, we're a movement that's for everyone and our demands are really important, but they're also vague. So... If we, if we just talk about the fact that we need a decarbonized renewable future by 2025, um, that we have to tell the truth, that we need land clearing and that we need to decolonize, most people can get behind those things, um, regardless of the, if they're a liberal voter or a one-nation voter or if they're a green voter. Um, so we'll always steer away from, from trying to act a political party or getting involved because this movement's for everybody. Um, Inevitably, yeah, we're going to have some effect on what happens in electoral politics, but we're not trying to change the outcomes. And um, yeah, the, the system as it works is is broken. We acknowledge that, so we we are trying to we are trying to change it. Another thing that's really important to note that we do is we go uh, we we say no, we shouldn't name and shame. So even though you might say you know Palaszczuk's bringing in these new laws or. Donald Trump's an arsehole. We always, or, or the Liberals are terrible and the Greens are great. We acknowledge that it is the system that is the problem. It's not those individuals or those parties. Um, and even by mentioning them or playing into that politics, you give them more power. Because, um, you know, people then think they're the things, you know, they have the power to change things. Or it's actually the, it's, it's people that have the power to change things. It's the masses. It's the citizens and the population of the country. So... It's really important to steer away from actually talking about politics at all and say it's the whole system that needs to change if we're going to survive this and have a, uh, a future free from oppression and a sort of safe future. So, yeah, always trying to steer away from that as much as possible. But I wonder, like, um, what do you think of the critique or the, the argument then that kind of losing seats or losing elections is really the only language that political parties understand at the moment? And... Yeah, that seems to be the only way to shift them. Or would you just kind of discount that in favour of a mass kind of protest model? I guess, I guess, um, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're not 
aiming to kind of say you're going to lose seats if you don't do this. Like, I think it's all about the language and messaging. And I think the government upholds this thinly veiled kind of plot that they they actually hold all the power and, you know, they're the ones who make the decisions. It's, you know, there's there's millions and millions of Australians who can do something about it. It's not up to people who are putting government um, to, to actually take hold of the future. It's not up to the, to the self-serving industries that prop them up for their, for their dirty money. I think a lot of people are aware of just how corrupt that system is. And um, more than we're speaking to the government <clears throat> to do things, we're kind of speaking to the people to say, this is, this is our planet, this is our country, and we need to do something about this. And if, yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, the kind of capitalism's only been around 130 years. It's a very short, short period in human history, the same as, you know, the, the current government in Australia and the way it works has only been around a few hundred years. Um, and it's not serving us. So, yeah, I guess it's trying to, trying to ignore the people who are actually in power and, and empower the people is, is the main goal. Um, and, yeah, so I'm... Some people back us and some hate us, and uh, it will inevitably affect elections. But the only parties, if you if you really look into it, that would actually have a chance of of um, doing something good about the climate with the right policies are so unlikely to get in, even in four years' time. That there's no option to wait for this current political system to act. It's got to be it's got to be us that act and force that change. Would you like to plug your next action or tell listeners like how? They can get involved um, if they're interested in, in taking part in Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm definitely being tapped, so uh, there'll be something happening very soon. Um, I reckon <laughs> you should pay, pay attention to. Um, there is um, a family Extinction Rebellion in Southeast Queensland has a families group, um, and they're doing something called the Big Buzz. Um, so all the kids are dressing up as bees and the adults too, and they're going swarming through the city. Um, they might be crossing some roads into Langston people, um, but it's more a family kind of fun event picnic day with just a little bit of that. So that's our next big public event. And we've also got two fundraisers coming up. Um, so if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see all the dates and locations. Um, come along, there's some bands playing and some DJs. Um, and there's lots and lots of trainings we're doing from civil disobedience, non-violent direct action trainings to um, media trainings, legal trainings, um, security culture and tech trainings. Um, and even if you're not going to use it with Extinction Rebellion, it's still good tools to have. Um, legal rights trainings, everybody should know their rights. I think that's always something should be taught in schools and not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, it's all on the Facebook page. You can see all of our events. Uh, there will be some more public actions, but really we're just gearing up for a huge time uh, on October 7th and onwards. And just to clarify, it's not one day on October 7th, it's, it's going to be rolling days, okay. potentially weeks. We'll see how we go. But um, it's, a, it's urgent. We've got to act now. And um, I urge anyone that's kind of on the line, maybe I should do something someday when we're going to get serious. Like the time is right now to get serious and, and prioritise, yeah, fighting for climate justice. Cool. Not much more time to wait. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Revenues, revenues, revenues. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's kind of the end of our episode for tonight. Um, thanks heaps to Extinction Rebellion as well for sending a spokesperson along. We really appreciate it. Um, I reckon like maybe we have a few differences with with 
the movement with Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, I think all of us would identify as strongly anti-capitalist, for instance, and would say that um, capitalism is the cause of climate change and there is no addressing climate change without addressing capitalism. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a few valuable things to what Extinction Rebellion is doing as well, which we were just talking about off air. So. Yeah, I think for me, one of the exciting things is this does have an element that's different to a lot of the other protest movements we've seen in Brisbane over the last 10 to 15 years, like mm-hmm. seeing these mass arrests um, is quite incredible. I went along to the last um, Rebellion Day, which was um, – so they had – um, applied to have the street outside of the front of One William Street, which is where all the public servants are. But as um, everyone marched around the corner, um, sat down on the road, which is like the off-ramp from the Riverside Drive, and um, were blocking traffic. And then um, the police set up a tape along one side of the road and they said okay we're going to progressively move this tape if you're on the other side of the tape you're going to get arrested and it was basically people then deciding okay I'm going to get arrested if they were on the other side of the tape and I was up the back near where the police cars were and it was just a steady stream of people being marched up to get processed and that was quite incredible like a whole lot of different people um who were there ready to get arrested and were getting processed and I think that is quite new like in comparison to like you know where the refugee movement is now which Mm. like the last refugee um, rally I went to was honestly one of the most gut-wrenching bits of of uh, like protests that I've ever been involved in it was 200 people max doing uh, you know a well-worn path a square in the city um, with the police at the front and the back, mm. um, you know, very tame, no new language, nothing, and just feels like we're getting nowhere. Like at least this feels a little bit different um, in terms of tactics, um, which I think there's, yeah, there's some there's some interesting tactics that are being used here, but um, maybe for us not like the link to a bigger um, – ideological strategy um Mm. that i think have brought a lot of us into this movement Mm -hmm. and it's impressive that they elicited the response from palaszczuk in terms of calling them extremists and forcing them to change like you know getting them to the point where they're changing laws uh like ridiculous laws that make the palace sort of at least expose how uh willing the uh the labor party is uh to be deeply undemocratic when they feel like the interests of their donor class are being threatened in any meaningful way Um, i think it's i think it may have cost them some soft labor votes because i've seen quite a few comments on those palaszczuk posts about the extremist language and like i think there's some soft labor people who have peeled off because of that and have been turned off by that labor knuckling down it has successfully been framed as a sort of like return to the days of joe bielke peterson uh and it's been sorry you go oh which i yeah i think a lot of um especially like middle-aged Labour voters um, have a strong cultural memory of that and are very disappointed with Palaszczuk for returning to that kind of authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and successfully polarising as well, like, you know, in the sense that it's forcing people to pick a side in some way. I mean, I think the, as you said, Joe, I think, you know, like uh, a few of the sort of like um, broader disagreements would be around the fact that, you know, like... Uh, one that uh, it is the political parties in charge, the Labour and Liberal Party in particular, who 
are directly responsible for that inaction and whether or not uh, they are even capable of uh, facilitating some sort of broad-scale response to climate change and that capitalism is like the prof like capitalism as an economic and social system is the primary is like is the cause of climate change i think is a and if you i feel like if you don't have that analysis and you don't have that ability to uh identify that there is classes like there a society is deeply like is based on capitalist society or capitalism is based on social classes the ruling you know the bosses and ruling classes of which have an economic interest to continue uh like facilitating the growth uh, like unending perpetual growth of capitalism and that to stop that is going to require breaking their power and breaking them as a class and that means constituting an alternative class of people or an alternative movement that is capable of wielding power and being able to confront them um you know in civil society and in politics um i think you know like and I don't think it's um, as simple as convening, being able to convene a, a group or in civil society and getting experts in the room uh, to listen to them. You know, like I, I, I think that like that sort of tactic um, p- potentially maybe misses the, the like that broader analysis and um, uh, and critique to a degree. But that's not to say that it, this is probably you know this is certainly the most successful thing we've seen in Brisbane in a long time in relation civil society movement in relation to. Um, in relation to climate change. I would be interested to see what happens in the future in terms of if... Because a lot of these new laws that they're pushing through are so broad that they will also apply to, um, like, industrial action um, by uh, unions and that sort of thing. So I'd be interested to see... And, you know, cynical side of me says it'll probably be nothing will happen, but if, if the unions... If they, like... If Extinction Rebellion continues on and the government continues to, like, crack down on it more and more, if there is a point where the unions are like, well, hang on, all this stuff applies to our, like, you know, industrial action, that sort of stuff, and, like, will they, you know, will they end up being a wedge being driven or the, you know, the union's so corporatized now that they just don't even view that as a threat or to them or even relevant to them anymore yeah and i think this yeah exactly well and i mean i think the other this relates to a conversation about green new deal um questions around like for the vast vast swathes of ordinary people who for whom like um politics has failed them and they live in a you know they operate in a society that's deeply disempowering and alienating uh whether or not uh a movement demanding action or like um, from a system that they don't believe can affect that change anyway. Uh, Like a movement that isn't capable of articulating why they're in the position and feeling a sense of powerlessness and how um, uh, being able to act collectively is able, allows you to reconstitute a sense of power and both can change the material conditions of your life uh, and improve them uh, and also address climate change. I think if you're just being told that uh, all we need is to demand change, it will happen, falls into the trap that the Iraq war movement fell into in the 2001 period where we had the biggest marches in human history and it wasn't able to... um, And, you know, um, we certainly had probably more than 4% of the population out in the streets 
demanding that the war don't go ahead and it still went ahead. Um, and, you know, we're all reckoning with that failure still, I think. Um, but again, for all of those sort of criticisms, it's not to say that it's certainly um, uh, the biggest, certainly had the biggest impact of anything I've seen in a long time in Brisbane. Yeah. Maybe that's a good place to leave it or if anyone has any closing thoughts. The only other thing we didn't get to ask them about was their relationship to the the other big moment which is going on, which is the school strike. Oh, shit, that was Liam's um, question. I forgot uh, to ask yeah. it. Oops, sorry, Liam. Um, no, that's what he gets for not coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which is the other big exciting thing that's that's happening at the Maybe moment. Maybe we need to get some school strikers on. True. Yeah. Okay, if you yeah. are a school striker and you would like yeah. to come on the cast, get yeah. in touch. And I think the other thing they're doing successfully is articulating that we're, we're in a very urgent moment. You know, we've got, we've yeah. got 12 years uh, counting down um, to be able to address climate change effectively and they've certainly turned the heat up and I think the reaction from the government is a demonstration of that. They're, they're feeling that fire at their feet and their reaction is to be, uh, you know, very knee-jerk and say, okay, we're just going to stop this protest happening. Obviously, they just don't want to have to give up those Aldi bags. (laughs) (laughs) Those precious Aldi bags. Plastic Aldi bags. 15 cents each. They should should be arguing that they are environmentally friendly because they are receiving (laughs) their bribes in... Reusable bag. Reusable bag. Like it's not a pa- <laughs> this isn't a brown paper bag anymore, you know, no. where they chuck out at the end of it. I think the other um, really interesting and important element of this that Tom touched on was decolonisation and um, he obviously didn't get a chance to articulate that in detail but, um, you know, thinking about how um, First Nations groups are at the forefront of a lot of these struggles, like Adani is at the heart of so many of these conversations in Queensland and um, that is in part because... Um, it is impacting on, you know, this 80,000-year history, living history and living culture, and that is being threatened by, um, you know, digging up coal for a short-term profit and um, having decolonisation at the forefront of these struggles is really important. I don't think uh, really any environmental m- – most environmental movements haven't done this very well. Um, and um, – I think that's something that we need to keep thinking about and um, addressing. Yeah, for sure. Um, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, we'll try and get back on a slightly more regular podcasting schedule. Uh, Now everyone's back in the country. Um, Yeah, and if you've got any topics as well that you'd like us to cover, please do get in touch. We're always up to uh, get some inspiration. Um, And hopefully we try and do the cast a little bit more regularly from here on in as well. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.